Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled Correcting the Correction for Reformation Day 2005 and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, October 30th, 2005. When I was in high school 30 years ago, Coach Riddle hosted a weekly Bible study in his upstairs apartment across the street from our football field where Friday night lights gathered most people in our small town. I can't remember what we read in that Bible study, but I do remember that my friend Philip attended only about half the time because the other half of the time he was smoking dope in a small group of a different sort. When someone complained that Philip was a hypocrite, a buddy suggested that it was better that he attended the Bible study and doping sessions rather than only his doping sessions. The readings from the prophet Micah and the evangelist Matthew for this week focus a glaring spotlight on religious hypocrisy, and the picture is not pretty. Rather, it is a picture of religion as manipulation, exploitation, authoritarian hierarchy, and abuse. Micah compares the religious leaders of his day to cannibals who devoured their flock. They distorted justice and preached for pecuniary motives. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus warned his listeners about clerics who do not practice what they preach, who parade their religion to gain praise from people, and who covet honor and obsequious flattery. Self-indulgence, the absence of even the slightest degree of self-awareness, unenlightened zeal, obsession with trivial and peripheral concerns, preoccupation with external appearances rather than genuine inward transformation, and sanctimonious pronouncements. All these are the trademarks of religious hypocrisy that provoke Jesus' ire. You snakes! You brood of vipers, he exclaimed. How will you escape being condemned to hell? Many Christians around the world will celebrate October 31st as Reformation Day, for it was on this day in 1517 that Martin Luther posted his 95 theses on the castle church in Wittenberg and so instigated what we now call the Protestant Reformation. The Reformation was many different and complex things, and every sector of European society was radically altered. Culture, politics, economics, and governments. But at its root, the Reformation was a protest about clerical corruption and church hypocrisy that had festered for more than a millennium. People had had enough of religious authoritarianism, exploitation, and abuse. Purification of the church and restoration to its original integrity became the order of the day. The Reformation did much good, but barely a hundred years after Luther put down his hammer, what many Christians had hailed as a purification of hypocrisy was lamented by others as a recrudescence of compromise. Consider these three examples. Violent forces were unleashed that perhaps nobody could have predicted or even prevented. Estimates vary and are a matter of controversy, but the Thirty Years' War from 1618 to 1648 
plunged Central Europe into a downward spiral of disease, famine, and war that brought early death to at least 15 to 20 percent of the population. Even when they battled to bloody exhaustion, Catholics and Protestants could not sit down at the same table. Such was the bitterness that when the combatants had fought themselves to a standstill, they could not bring themselves to negotiate together. Catholics and Protestants had to meet imperial representatives in two different Westphalian cities 30 miles apart to create the Peace of Westphalia, which at long last brought an official end to the carnage on October 24, 1648. So for some people, the Reformation is a reminder of savage days when Christians slaughtered each other over arcane theological doctrines. Others decry the fragmentation of the faithful. Eastern Orthodox and Roman Catholic Christians had split in the year 1054, but then Luther ruptured Western Christendom again and what remained of church unity even further. 16th century Catholics knew that encouraging individual believers to read the Bible for themselves in their own vernacular would undermine the authority of their hierarchy which is why the Roman Index of 1596 prohibited translations of the Bible into everyday vernacular, and why they publicly burned such Bibles as they could find. Catholics also rightly predicted that sectarian zeal devoted to privatistic Bible reading would fragment the church into scattered shards. Today, then, we have over 20,000 Protestant denominations every one of which justifies its existence to some degree by claiming that it alone has the magic, or at least more of the magic in a purer form than less informed Christians. In addition to slaughtering each other and shredding the garment of church unity, before too long, Protestants themselves had settled into their own ossified institutions that reflected and conformed to culture more than they transformed it. Perhaps no one has been as perceptive, as acerbic, and as brilliant in observing and denouncing cultural Christianity than Kierkegaard. His parodies expose a Danish Lutheranism that had become indistinguishable from the spiritlessly polite worldview of the bourgeoisie. About three years before he died, Kierkegaard even stopped attending church and taking communion. However brilliant his exposés, Kierkegaard's scorched-earth strategy makes me nervous. Protests about religious hypocrisy always risk self-incrimination, not to mention sounding unctuous, harsh, and sanctimonious. Who among us can expose hypocrisy and fully rise above it in their own life? The longing for a radical revolution to purify the church of all its problems is understandable, even commendable but it founders on the rocks of naive idealism and the stubborn realities of human fallibility. In the early summer of 1987, I interviewed the French sociologist Jacques Ellul at his home in Bordeaux. And as we departed, we stood at the end of his driveway where he confessed that the greatest misjudgment of his life was to think that after the end of World War II, French political, social, and economic institutions could be rebuilt free of all hypocrisy, exploitation, and abuse. That, Elul admitted, was not to be. As a Protestant, I'm thankful for the Reformation that we celebrate at this time of year. 
But I'm also painfully aware of the carnage, the fragmentation, and the institutionalization of the gospel that followed in its wake. Aware of my own faults and failures, the slow pace of my progress as a believer, and of how far short I fall of the gospel ideal, I'm uneasy about obsessing about the hypocrisy of the church or of other Christians. Instead, my mind returns to an important Latin dictum that emerged among Reformed communities in the wake of the Reformation. Ecclesia reformata sed semper reformanda. The church reformed, but always needing to be reformed. The Baptist theologian A.J. Conyers called this correcting the correction. The work of genuine re reformation, whether of the institutional church as a whole or of an individual life, is never finished. Nor is the spirit who fulfills that hope ever deaf to the prayers of those who long for it. And for further reflection, what has been your experience of church hypocrisy, or on the other hand, of genuine church renewal? Secondly, what relationships do you have with Christians outside of your own tradition, whether Orthodox, Catholic, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Pentecostal, Methodist, and so on? Thirdly, do you understand the Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox ruptures as a necessary correction or as an unfortunate separation. And for recommended reading, I suggest two books that have been edited by Charles Colson and Richard John Newhouse. First of all, Evangelicals and Catholics Together Toward a Common Mission, published in 1995, and a second book, Your Word is Truth, A Project of Evangelicals and Catholics Together published in the year 2002. My book review this week looks at a book by Michael Kimmelman, The Accidental Masterpiece on the Art of Life and Vice Versa. New York, Penguin Press, 2005, 245 pages. When I lived in Moscow and would visit St. Petersburg, a visit to the Hermitage Art Museum was always an obligatory pleasure. Ditto for New York. The last time my wife and I traveled there, we visited the Metropolitan Museum. But at both museums, I felt a pronounced sense of dislocation, like I somehow lacked the knowledge, the experience, or the aesthetic sensibility to appreciate fully the exhibits we saw. We enjoyed much of what we saw, but we still saw a lot of art quote-unquote, that caused me to resonate with Harry Truman's judgment that Winston Churchill's works were damn good because, quote, at least you can tell what they are, and that is more than you can say for a lot of those modern painters, end quote. Were the artists and their work pretentious, or was I just ignorant? Michael Kimmelman, the chief art critic of the New York Times, has written an unpretentious book that genuinely appreciates my common dilemma for both artist and amateur. He moves the reader beyond Truman's humorous but ill-formed notion and does so in a manner that does not condescend toward the reader or dumb down his subject. His book is eminently accessible and written with a deft touch, 
itself a textual work of art that's a pleasure to read. Yes, he takes you through the world of professional artists like Matisse and Michelangelo, the brilliant and the bizarre, but he also gives equally serious attention to the artistic impulse in the likes of a retired dentist, Hugh Hicks, who had a collection of 75,000 light bulbs, a prisoner named Ray Matterson, who learned how to do exquisite embroideries of his beloved New York Yankees while he was in prison, painting by numbers that I tried as a child, and the homemade quilts made by poor black women in remote Gee's Bend, Alabama, which he describes as, quote, some of the most miraculous works of modern art that America has ever produced, end quote. Although a professional art critic, Kimmelman imparts an infectious sense of wonderment and enthusiasm that democratizes art in the best sense of that term. Art can transform our lives by helping us to live more fully and attentively, and not only by engaging the sublime, but by appreciating the mundane and the utterly ordinary. Humanity's creative impulse hints at something beyond and greater than ourselves that emerges not despite, but even because of, restraints, conflicts, and confinement. Beauty, in Kimmelman's view, clearly has a spiritual element that helps us to slow down our systems so that we can live as we ought. Through appreciating art, Kimmelman writes, we may learn something about how to conceive of our own ordinary existence, about how to live and die more constructively or at least more alertly which is to say that even, or especially, one's life can be a creative act of art and beauty. For film, I review the 1998 film entitled Everest. At five and a half miles high, 29,028 feet, mighty Mount Everest is the holy grail of climbers. Since, Ed, since Edmund Hillary first summited Everest in 1953, over 150 people have died trying to scale its height, about a third of them by avalanche. This interesting, if short, film, just 45 minutes long, documents a successful 1996 IMAX expedition by three climbers, Jamling Tenzing Norgay, whose father accompanied Hillary, Araceli Seguera, the first Spanish woman to ever reach the top, and Ed Vistours, a professional climber who also happens to use this trip as his honeymoon. As fate would have it, their climb occurred at the same time as the disaster documented in John Krakauer's book, Into Thin Air, when New Zealander Rob Hall and seven others were caught in a storm and killed. Spectacular scenery takes you to the crevasses and coals, the gale winds, the snug tents, base camps, and minus 100 degree temperatures. But the successful climb that the film documents is overshadowed by our knowledge that the real story at that time was about Hall and his ill-fated companions. A powerfully emotional interview with Beck Weathers, a survivor of the Hall expedition who lost both hands and part of his face to frostbite, is one of the special features of the DVD that makes watching this otherwise interesting film all the more worthwhile. At 35 minutes, this special feature, which interviews Weathers, is almost as long as the film itself. 
And finally, for poetry, we have posted In Memoriam by Alfred Lord Tennyson. Strong Son of God, immortal love, whom we that have not seen thy face by faith and faith alone embrace, believing where we cannot prove. Thine are these orbs of light and shade. Thou madest life in man in brute. Thou madest death, and lo, thy foot is on the skull which thou hast made. Thou wilt not leave us in the dust. Thou madest man, he knows not why. He thinks he was not made to die, and thou hast made him. Thou art just. Thou seemest human and divine, the highest, holiest manhood thou. Our wills are ours, we know not how. Our wills are ours, to make them thine. Our little systems have their day, they have their day and cease to be. They are but broken lights of thee, and thou, O Lord, art more than they. We have but faith we cannot know, for knowledge is of things we see, and yet we trust it comes from thee, a beam in darkness, let it grow. Let knowledge grow from more to more, but more of reverence in us dwell, that mind and soul according well may make one music as before. But vaster, we are fools and slight. We mock thee when we do not fear, but help thy foolish ones to bear. Help thy vain worlds to bear thy light. Forgive what seemed my sin in me, what seemed my worth since I began, for merit lives from man to man, and not from man, O Lord, to thee. Forgive my grief for one removed, thy creature whom I found so fair. I trust he lives in thee and there. I find him worthier to be loved. Forgive these wild and wandering cries, confusion of a wasted youth. Forgive them where they fail in truth, and in thy wisdom make me wise. Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, October 30th, 2005. And please join us every Monday for a new essay, book note, film review, and poem. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.